Welcome once more, ladies and gentlemen, to the never-ending struggle with Charles Coulomb, that's your host, me, uh, in which we look at 20 centuries of church history from the time of Jesus Christ down to the present, the uh, triumphs and tragedies, the struggles, the victories, the losses, the defeats of the Catholic Church in her long pilgrimage from the time of our Lord down to the present. But tonight, we're going to look at something a little different because this is November, the month of the Holy Souls, and a time when Catholic attention turns, to, as it should, to uh, our final ends. Now, this is something that, frankly, we don't hear a lot about anymore, sadly. And certainly when you go to an awful lot of funerals today, uh, you would think the person is already in heaven, safely canonized and singing with the saints. And while, of course, we would hope that would be true, um, the statistical likeliness is it may very well not be. And so what we're going to look at in this coming hour is nothing more and nothing less than the Catholic dealings with the, uh, the dead, the unseen, the bizarre, the preternatural, what happens when they come back, if they come back. That's a whole other question. But before we get into dubious and debatable areas, what we want to look at first and foremost is what is certain. And here is what is certain, ladies and gentlemen. First death and then the judgment. Each and every one of us will appear after we die before our Lord, and we will be judged on the basis of what we have believed, what we have done, whether we're whether we have the uh, the graces of the sacraments, or we don't, and many other many other things that will determine our eternal fate. Now. There are three states after death, two of them eternal, well, actually four, I guess, if you want to count limbo, um, two eternal, one of them temporary, limbo, one really can't say much about. Um, there are all sorts of theological quibbles about it, but basically the limbo of the infants is uh, where the unbaptized infants go. Uh, since they're human beings, they're sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, they are, um, they are stuck with the difficulties of being fallen man. But, on the other hand, they have no actual sins of their own, and all of the tortures of hell and the pains of purgatory are the result of sins that we've committed. So, the infants in limbo do not suffer in any way whatsoever. That's an important thing to bear in mind. But there's another way. None of us uh, here today have ever been in a state as pleasant as Limbo because the fallen world we live in, this world of sin and shadows, is marred by sin. And that's something that you don't have to worry about in Limbo. Heaven, of course, is the end to which we were all intended. From the time that uh, God saw each of us 
in his in his mind. He, um, he very very definitely intended for us to go to heaven. Nothing more, nothing less. And our first parents, of course, ruined that project with the fall. Uh, he held out hope before the coming of uh, before the coming of himself, his son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, becoming incarnate as man, and creating the escaping the trap of being human. But that heaven, that divine life, that union with him, that being made like unto him, that divinization, there are many words for it, beatitude, glory, uh, that is the intended state, intended by the creator of every man, that is the intended state of every man and woman, just so you know, we are, we are including them both. Now, this is wonderful. The problem is summed up in two words, free will. Because as with our first parents, and particularly because of our fallen nature, although the means of redemption are given us in church and sacraments, even if we take advantage of them, we still have, because of the fall, a darkened intellect, weakened will, and an inclination toward evil which St. Paul himself That's pretty tough, actually, ladies and gentlemen, that inclination toward evil. It afflicts all of us most of the time and most of us all the time. And it's a difficult thing to overcome. Were it not for divine grace, none of us could overcome it. None of us could overcome it. But Thanks be to God. Thanks be to his grace. Some of us respond and eventually one way or the other make it to heaven. However, sadly, very, very sadly, a lot of us don't. The exact proportion we can't know, of course, although our Lord speaks of the narrow gate and the wide gate. But what we do know is that uh, pretty easy indeed. Going to heaven requires our willingness to do someone else's will, i.e. God's will. To go to hell, all we have to do is want to persist in putting our will over his. If we do that, if we constantly say no to his promptings, well, we wouldn't want to spend eternity with him if we spent our whole lives denying him. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't deathbed conversions, there aren't all sorts of strange things that happen. But by and large, if you spend your life denying him, you will probably spend eternity that way. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is truly the definition of hell. Now, of course, the inhabitants of heaven and hell, before we look at their human hell, the angels, who are an entirely different order of creation to our own. They are not uh, 
They're not human in any sense. You'll often hear, oh, God wanted another angel, so he took Bobby. Well, no. Human beings will never become angels. Angels have never been human beings. They're entirely different from us. They can move at the speed of thought. They are not hampered by the sort of bodies we have, the sort of flesh we have. One result of that, incidentally, is that whereas in our lives, because of the flesh and the world of the devil, we tend to go back and forth with our decisions, saying yes to God, no to God, yes to God, no to God, yes to God, no to God, constantly. Uh, the angels, however, they don't have that consideration. So in the beginning of time, when they were given the choice to obey God or to refuse, they made their choices, and those choices were forever because they were considered, they were ultimate and complete acts of the will, of wills, of free wills that were untrammeled and unhampered by the flesh and did what they did with full and complete consideration. So St. Michael and all the angels that stayed loyal to, uh, to God, they, um, they will never falter, not a one of them. They will never, ever falter in their devotion to God. And so they, uh, they labor, they work for us. Uh, they do a lot of other things, of course. It's important to bear in mind that the running of the universe uh, uses the angels in different capacities. Uh, St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, tells us that there are nine choirs. This has been pretty much adopted by uh, church tradition. The three highest choirs of angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, the thrones, uh, spend their time, the, the seraphim, just in adoring God. The cherubim, too. The thrones bring his grace to the lower choirs. You've got the virtues, powers, and uh, principalities. I think that's right. There's dominions. I get mixed up. Anyway, virtues, powers, principalities. Uh, who are responsible for administering the the greater uh, the greater realm of the universe? Then you have, I believe, is dominions, archangels, and angels. And from the archangels are drawn the guardian angels of nations and things of that sort. And from the angels, well, from them come each of our guardian angels, of which more in just moment. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We were speaking of the guardian angels when we cut off, and 
<coughs> the guardian angels are an extremely important each guardian angel is an extremely important being. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, every angel is an entirely different species in and of itself. In and of himself, perhaps. Uh, but each of us is given a guardian angel at the moment of our conception uh, who looks after us and is given to us to work with toward our salvation for the rest of our lives. And will do his best to help us out in that in that direction, especially if we ask for his help, uh, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be afraid to ask for his help. But some say that uh, if, if you achieve a certain office, if you're a monarch or religious or uh, various other things, you get a second guardian angel to help you accomplish that particular state in life, and there is certainly the teaching that uh, cities, provinces, and countries have guardian angels. And in fact, the guardian angels of Spain and Portugal, and in days gone by of different French dioceses, all had uh, feasts on the calendar. So the concept of the guardian angel is a very, very important one. The prayer, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, delight in God, to rule and guide, is really and truly something every Catholic should know. The um, other one to remember is the God. Exciting one, if you will. The one we invoke most often, I suppose, is St. Michael, the leader of the heavenly hosts, whose uh, feast of uh, was major feast in the Western calendar is September 29th. It's November 8th in the Byzantine calendar, coincidentally my birthday. Uh, and St. Michael is the patron of the church who's the patron of the Holy Roman Empire, the patron of France, the patron of Catholic militants everywhere, the head of the angelic armies. His name, Mikhail, means who is like unto God. Second is the archangel St. Gabriel, who uh, was the one who first and foremost made the announcement of the visitation to Our Lady. Uh, the visitation, I'm sorry, the Annunciation, uh, declared to Our Lady that she would conceive of the Holy Ghost, which is probably the most important message ever given by anyone to anyone. So the name Gabriel means messenger of God. The third is St. Raphael, who is mentioned in the Book of Tobit as uh, Tobias's helper and accompanier, is the patron of travelers as a result. And also doctors, because of the way he heals Tobias in the book. Um, some of the non-canonical scriptures and a number of traditions name a fourth archangel as Uriel. Um, again, he's not canonical, but he uh, the name is is he's got a certain amount of tradition behind him. 
Then the three others are given different names according to different local traditions to various churches. Um, it's <clears throat> none of them have the authority. None of those three have the authority of the church behind them, but they are known in some local calendars and that kind of thing. So those are the seven archangels who stand before the throne of God. And these angels are the inhabitants of heaven, the co-maintainers of the universe with God, our friends and protectors. A truly an amazing and wonderful uh, set of beings. Unfortunately, a number of them, as you mentioned earlier, fell, decided to do their own will rather than that of God, and so they were cast out from heaven. The leader was Lucifer, whom we call Satan, and the fallen angels are, of course, the demons. They, um, to put it mildly, hate us. Absolutely, positively, completely hate us. They envy our envy the possibility of our salvation. They envy the love that God has for each of us. They envy the love that the angels and saints have for each of us. They envy the beatitude that the saints have achieved. They envy the even the state of the souls in purgatory, which we'll talk about momentarily. Um, hatred and envy is pretty much what and who they are. And they're chief, the worst of all. Through our history as a race, they have done everything they could to damage us and destroy us. Uh, beginning, of course, with Lucifer's tempting our mother Eve successfully and dragging the human race down in the fall. The, with each of us on an individual level, uh, hateful. It's interesting that Satan will be the tempter until we do a sin, and then after we've done it, he becomes the accuser before God. Oh, look what he did, look what he did. Really, if one sits and thinks about the horrendous damage that Satan and the demons have done to our people, to our race, from the time of the fall, one can have nothing but hatred of them. There can be no pity, there can be nothing, just as they themselves can never be reconciled with God. He, if it were possible to forgive, he would forgive, but it's not possible for them to repent, you see. They have chosen their path and they will pursue it forever. But in the end, in the end, ladies and gentlemen, we will triumph because our God will triumph. If we make it to heaven, in the whether going immediately after we die or via purgatory, about which we'll speak momentarily, if we do that, then we will have won. We will have spited the demons. We will have joined in Christ's victory and that of our 
our fellow saints and the unfallen angels. And at the end of time, as it says in the Bible, know ye not that men will judge angels. And all that the demons have done to our hapless race will be avenged. All the losses, all the horror. And perfect justice as well as perfect mercy will reign. That will be the state of final beatitude after the final judgment. The coming of which, of course, we we don't know. More about that momentarily as well. But let's move along. Now, as we go as we go through life, ladies and gentlemen, we sin, we are absolved, we sin again. But every sin uh, receives a a uh, every sin receives a, a certain amount of temporal punishment that it's due. This this temporal punishment is best explained in this fashion. If you steal my wallet, uh, I can forgive you, but you still owe me the money. Well, sin is like that. We may be forgiven through the confessional, but we still owe something for what we did. Uh, now, that temporal punishment, that debt can be discharged in this life by offering up uh, our pains and sufferings for it by getting plenary and partial indulgences or all sorts of things we can do. But whatever temporal punishment remains on us when we die, bearing in mind that martyrdom and the rest of it blots it all out, but if we're not martyred, we'll just die. Whatever temporal punishment reigns on our soul has to be worked off. And it is purged from us in purgatory. And the souls in purgatory are called the holy souls. They are the, the um, in a sense, blessed because they know they can't go to hell. They receive a certain amount of torment by way of, of easing their pains, saving them, getting them out of it all. But by the same token, uh, they can't pray for themselves. They can't help themselves at all. They can pray for us. That they can do. And so we can pray to them and ask for their help. But to pay them back, we need to pray for them. And this month of the Holy Souls that we're in now, uh, All Hallows Tide with the Night of Halloween, All Saints Day, All Souls Day, the Vespers of the Dead, and the night of All Saints Day, the visits to the cemetery, uh, all through the octave of All Saints, culminating November 8th. And in a certain strange way, even the cultus of remembrance of the Great War that we talked about in another session, all these things are part of this month of the Holy Souls. There's all sorts of devotions to help free them from their, um, from their prison, there's the daily, uh, the daily uh, visit to purgatory that was popularized by the missionaries of the Sacred Heart. Um, there are a number of different devotions that we can use in helping the holy souls. And it's a good thing to do because they will help us. 
and of course, if presumably if anyone uh, any one of them gets to heaven, partly through our prayers and sacrifices, well, then guess what? They will turn around and pray and uh, so on for us once they make it to heaven. Purgatory then is a strange place in the sense that it is both a place of suffering and a place of joy, a place of the lack of despair. Now, we can also help the souls of purgatory by having prayers offered for the dead, uh, and masses offered for the dead, requiem masses. But more of that when we, get, when we come back. Welcome back. So we were speaking of the things that one can do for the dead. Requiem masses are, of course, the uh, obvious thing to do. And these can be more or less elaborate as you you like. The uh, standard low mass for the dead... uh, Black vestments and so on are very, very common in days gone by and still are in Latin mass communities. But there are other things you can do. There's the custom of the Gregorian masses, which are 30 masses for a given dead person said one after the other in over 30 days. Now, this custom has a very ancient uh, origin going back to the 500s at St. Gregory the Great. What happened was that uh, he had a vision of his predecessor, the previous pope, who revealed that he was in purgatory and required 30 masses to get him out. So, Pope St. Gregory the Great did just that. And that was the beginning of the custom of the 30 Gregorian masses. Now, there are, uh, you'll see in older churches, you will see what are called privileged altars. And these are extremely important. Uh, A privileged altar is an altar where a plenary indulgence can be applied uh, to a soul in purgatory whenever the priest is offering the mass there. And you get this in addition to whatever graces and benefits you have gotten otherwise. Now, these privileged altars uh, are still here to be seen. Uh, it's not, uh, what's the word I want? It's, um, well, you'll still see them. And if, you, if you're fortunate enough to know a priest who <laughs> A, has access to one and B, knows what he's doing, um, then you can have a mass offered at a privileged altar for your loved one or whomever strikes your fancy. 
once upon a time, there were priests who also had the privilege of being able to do the same thing. They'd be grant, granted this privilege, especially. And they could uh, use it at any altar, any time. But the return of the um, the return of the uh, predecessor of Pope St. Gregory the Great brings us to another interesting topic. Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy. And, I and that to is the return show, so of the souls after death. Uh, it's a... Um, it's an extremely, well, what can I say? Every culture that's ever existed has wondered about ghosts and the return of the dead. Who are they? What are they? Does it really happen? Um, ghost stories are about as common as writers. And they're a big part of the folklore of every, every imagined culture. Uh, you have them in the Bible. When the witch of Endor summoned up uh, the spirit of the prophet Samuel to talk to Saul. So, what does the church teach about these things? Well, there is no, there is no, um, no defined dogma about ghosts. But there are some teachings. And if we look at people like St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and a lot of other writers and purveyors of Catholic tradition, there are some things we can say. The first is that apparently hauntings, per se, fall into two different varieties. In the one, there doesn't seem to be any kind of intelligence there. In other words, uh, Lady Mary always walks through the blue room at midnight, and you can jump up and down, and you can throw books at this apparition. It pays no attention. It just walks through the room and does what it's going to do, and that's it. And St. Augustine uh, mentioned these kinds of things, talked about them. Um, not a lot to be said about that kind of a haunting, except that it may very well be something that we would call natural. Somehow or other, a scene gets impressed on a certain room and somehow or other gets replayed over and over. Who knows? The second, however, has an intelligence present that interacts with the viewer, the listener, or the, view, the witness of the phenomenon. These, as the, the consensus uh, of Catholic writers on the topic, was that there were three explanations. One were demons masquerading as the dead. Now, of course, the demons don't like us, and any information they give us is meant to ruin us. And so the church forbids us to go to seances or use, tar uh, what do you call it, Ouija boards or anything, uh, any necromancy, any invocation of the dead. Because the likelihood is that you're not going to get uh, on Sadie, but some thing masquerading as on Sadie. 
and whatever it has to tell you is not something you need to hear. So, the second are dance souls. And in a sense, this is a distinction without a difference. Because if Aunt Sadie is damned, she wants you to join her, no matter how much you and she might have loved each other in life. And this is a terrible, terrible thing. Another reason to stay away from the Ouija board and the seances. The third are spirits who return from purgatory, like the Pope who appeared to Pope St. Gregory the Great, and ask for <laughs> prayers, masses, whatever is required to free them from their current prison or to give information that uh, they feel is important, very often relating to, you guessed it, their time in purgatory. Uh, so Sean Leslie, in his ghost book, which, by the way, is the best book I know dealing with ghosts from a Catholic viewpoint. Sir Sean looks like Sir Shane Leslie. Anyway, he tells the story of a haunted rectory library where the pastor had died, and um, after he, he he got sick, went to the hospital, died. And after that, he began appearing in the library, scaring people out of their wits. Well, some years passed, and eventually a new pastor came. And he asked the Spirit in the name of Almighty God just what it was it wanted. Well, the apparition pointed at a book on a shelf and vanished. The pastor picked up the book, opened it, and inside was a list of masses that had been paid for, but never said by the priest because he went to the hospital and died. So the pastor offered all the masses that had been paid for, for those intentions, and offered another one for the repose of the pastor's soul, the old pastor's soul, and the ghost was never seen again. Tells another story of a, the, an elderly lady who came to the oratory in London and asked the duty priest to come and see a dying man. The priest went with the woman, went there, and, and she vanished, didn't know where she went. Goes in, sees the fellow who seems to be fine, but then he sees a picture of the lady who had summoned him, and it was his mother. They had a long talk. The man agreed, he was a fallen away Catholic, he agreed to drop by the oratory the next day, uh, and then he died in the night. So, these sorts of stories, uh, quite a few of them, and very well attested. In Rome, there's a church called Sacro Corte del Suffragio, near the Vatican, where they have a display case of items that Returnees from purgatory have marked with their the intense heat of their hands as proof that their apparitions were real uh, and that they meant business when they asked for masses of prayers to be said for them. There was a similar uh, thing on display for many years in the treasury of the cathedral of Bratislava, but it's been withdrawn from view because the uh, Current bishop or his predecessor thought it was too morbid or something or other. Uh, 
But at any rate, uh, this is a, uh, a definite, real phenomenon. And the church has been a great, play, great pains to try to explain it. Now, of course, there are all sorts of other bizarre preternatural phenomena that occur in the course of life that the church doesn't really have any dogmatic teaching on, although theologians have coped with them. Uh, there's the famous uh, Sinistrari book, Demoniality, which doesn't really deal with demons, but with what we would call poltergeists, elves, fairies, that kind of thing. Um, and offers various explanations drawn from the church fathers and other sources of that sort. But of course, there's nothing, nothing definite. What is certain is that there is a lot more to life than what we can see. And this is something that this time of year should definitely remind us of. A little bit more when we return. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to our final 15 minutes of the hour we're spending together dealing with the church, the unseen, and just at the moment, things that go bump in the night. Uh, there is, of course, as we know, uh, a whole cottage industry about this sort of thing. Um, and there's a whole sort of... Um, unspecified, difficult-to-understand set of phenomena. Uh, everything from ESP to, um, well, things that go bump in the night. Uh, and some of these have to do, uh, are, are, are in, in Catholic settings. So another book, in addition to Sinistrari's Demoniality and Sir Sean Leslie's Ghost Book, Another book I would recommend to you is uh, Dom Alois Biesinger's uh, Occult Phenomena in the Light of Theology. Uh, Dom Biesinger was a, a very was a Cistercian and a missionary and a very well-known uh, Catholic social theorist. But he dealt with this stuff at some length because of the time he spent as a missionary in uh, in uh, Brazil, where he encountered a great deal of this sort of thing. There are various sorts of magic and voodoo and all this sort of uh, these varying kinds of things. And one of the important things to bear in mind at this time of year is that the church has two missions. One is the salvation of souls, for guiding of souls through this earth and through purgatory, eventually to heaven. And while we're on this earth, to keep off from us the powers of darkness. So another important thing to bear in mind during this great and holy month of November 
is the use of sacramentals against the unseen darkness, the unseen evil that is all around us. And which sacramentals in particular? Well, holy water, of course. Uh, every Catholic home should have holy water, without a doubt. You should sprinkle it far and wide. Uh, the, uh, the scapular is very important. Now, mind you, there are several scapulars. Generally, when people say the scapular, they mean the brown scapular. The scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel that has the Sabatine privilege, which says that those who die wearing it, A, will not endure everlasting fire, providing, of course, they try to leave a, lead a Catholic life and so on. None of these things are magical. Um, it's no good being a tremendous sinner and wearing a scapular and thinking, well, that'll take care of it. Doesn't work that way. But according to the Sabatine privilege, if you die and clothed in the scapular, uh, the Saturday after you die, Our Lady will take you away from purgatory. And this promise was delivered to Pope John the 22nd. So it's not a small thing. But there are a number of other scapulars, uh, blue, the black scapular of the Passion, the red scapular of the Passion, the scapular of the Trinity, the scapular of St. Michael, the green scapular, all were revealed in different visions, all bring different graces. The miraculous medal, of course, is very important. Delivered at the Rue de Bac to um, Sister, uh, no, not Sister Bernadette, Sister she was the, uh, St. Catherine Labore. There you go. St. Bernadette Subaru was the, uh, the visionary of Lourdes. St. Catherine uh, Labore was the one who received the vision of the Miraculous Medal, which has many graces with it. Also, the St. Benedict Medal is an important protection against the powers of darkness. Um, so these are very, very, very important tools in the the fight against the the evils around us that we can't see because life you must understand ladies and gentlemen is very very much like an iceberg what you can see is the smallest part the biggest part is what you can't see so uh, I hardly recommend, ladies and gentlemen, that you become acquainted with the sacramentals of the church, especially with the holy water, the scapulars, and the sort of metals I've indicated, because they will protect you. Uh, again, not as magic, not as superstition, but as living signs of grace and of the love that our Lord, his angels and saints, and his divine mother have for all of us. Now, a couple of other points that one has to make. And that is, one of them is, that if in your own life you encounter the preternatural in your home, I think Sir Sean has a wonderful saying, he says, uh, Go, Catholics are forbidden to summon the spirits. They're not forbidden to see them any more than they're forbidden to see onrushing cars. So if you encounter anything of that sort in your own life, the first thing 
is to scatter holy water around. If you do that, one of two things will all likelihood happen. The phenomenon will stop or they'll get worse. If they get worse, then you want to have the priest in to bless the house, which you should probably do anyway. Um, you needn't necessarily tell him why if strange things are going on. But one or two things will happen. They'll stop or they'll get worse. If they get worse, then you really will have to tell the priest what is happening. Ask him into your home because you'll have to ask him to perform an exorcism. Now, exorcisms of places are much easier to get authorized by the bishop than exorcisms of people. Demonic possession is a horrible, horrible thing, and it it requires a very special kind of priest. Most dioceses have an exorcist who specializes in that kind of thing. And if you think a person is possessed, well, it's a bit of a process to get that kind of help. But houses and other such places are much, much easier. And I don't know of any cases uh, in which the in which the uh, exorcism of a house hasn't done the trick. So that that should take care of uh, that particular issue. Now, of course, all of these things are terribly, terribly mysterious. The more so because they presage the great mystery that awaits each of us, which is death. Whether or not ghosts come back and ask for prayers, which apparently they do, whether or not uh, elves or fairies or poltergeists or other beings exist, one way or the other, you or I, you and I, I should say, are going to die. Now, when this time comes, it will be the last great struggle for our souls between ourselves, our Lord, and the devil. The temptations and the frights and the horrors will be great, but so will the sources of strength. This is why we always pray in the Hail Mary. To We ask our Lady to pray for us now and at the hour of our death, because it is the disposition we die in that we will stay in for eternity, which is why it is so important that we say that Hail Mary as often as we can. It, it's so important that we die in the scapular. It is so important that we receive the last rites, extreme unction, the sacrament of the sick. That sacrament and the apostolic blessing uh, sometimes it brings about physical recovery, but it certainly will armor us with what we need for that last final voyage to the immediate judgment. I say the immediate judgment because here's the thing. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are made up of body and soul. The Philosophers, the theologians, the scholastics, 
like to say that the soul is the form and the body, the matter of the human being. We are complete, oddly enough, only when we are body and soul. Now, when we die, we will cease to be complete beings. We will be disembodied spirits. Our bodies will go back to the earth from whence they came, or they'll be burned, or whatever. They'll rot, perhaps completely. And we will not be complete if we live in heaven or in purgatory. We certainly won't be complete if we're in hell. But in heaven and purgatory, we will still be awaiting the return to our glorified bodies. Because you see, the general judgment, the final judgment, is the last historical act on this planet. And at that general judgment, that Tiaziri, the day of wrath, the day of mourning, but it'll see fulfilled the prophet's warning. On that dread day, the trumpet shall sound and the graves of earth shall open, and all of us who have ever been, from the time of Adam to the present, <coughs> shall be brought back in our respective bodies and be judged according to our deeds our beliefs, our actions. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is when finally everything should be complete. And some of us will go to heaven where we will achieve beatitude and be the complete saved human beings that God has meant us to be from the beginning. Others of us, sadly, will go to hell and for all eternity, be damned. That's why the Diazire says, uh, we'll all be needing mercy on that day. So pray for me, I'll pray for you, and please God, we shall all meet merrily in paradise. Take care and a happy November, the month of the holy souls.